I want to steal a bit from our friends over at Trash Future. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm paying all royalties to, to Riley for this, but let's do a guest of startup, um, before we get rolling into the, into the meat of the episode. So the, the startup is called Lofty. Any, any, any quick guesses before I give you some, some, uh, redacted copy from their, from their website? Um, beds. I was shit. I was thinking like rental space in your artist loft and mm. enter big city. All right, you got the good instincts, good instincts, but it's not that. It's not that. So here's here's uh, here's a little uh, uh, redacted copy. So invest in tokenized blank for only fifty dollars and sell any time. What? Rights to a bed? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it's like a timeshare for your bed. <laughs> Is it? You're like, no, no, it's not. No. Oh my god! <laughs> funny, you know? <laughs> I was gonna lose my mind. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking like that, that, like that scene from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they're all in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> fucking, what's that? There's a word. There's a word that uh, that you uh, hot cotton. Like when you have to like share a desk with somebody, like you, everybody's on a rotation. Oh, we just call it <laughs> hot desking. What the fuck is yeah. hot cottoning? <laughs> what is hot cottoning? It's, a, it's like a, on a submarine when there's only a certain amount of uh, cots for or uh, bunks for people to, to sleep in. So people sleep in them and shift. So you're never going to get like a cold bed. It's always going to be hot when you get in it. Oh, hot. Oh, like a cot. Oh, uh, I thought you said cotton. cotton. And I was like, what I is did hot too. cotton? I thought you said cotton as well. I was like, what the fuck is hot cotton? Uh, that's a different startup. That's what the anti-millionaire. All right, I'm going to give you some more marketing copy for Lofty. Uh, or here's actually a testimonial. Um, I've invested in a handful of blank through Lofty and love the simplicity of distributed payments via the blockchain. It feels like the future of blank. This could be anything. (laughs) This could could be anything. They just put a Raspberry Pi in it and said that it's connected to the blockchain or a smart home. What is this? Is it a loaf of bread? It's not a loaf of bread. <laughs> no, go back to your original, but think bigger. You know, you is guys it, were saying, uh, like, is it a loft? Is it a bed? Like, think bigger. It's just bigger, a fucking, bed. like, timeshare for an apartment is what it sounds like. People are, like, buying square footage for an investment. Like, mm-hmm. I have $15, you have $20, Ed's got $30, and together we have enough money to buy a video game. And oh we share it by the percentage of who pays the most. Is this a fucking crypto timeshare? It's not a timeshare, but it is definitely in the real estate space. Um, all right, I'll give you one more one more clue here. Purchase tokens for fifty dollars each and become a direct owner. Get your first blank payment that same day. Is it fractional is rent? Landlord? Is it like a fractional landlord? Yeah, rent thing. Yes, it is. Oh my fucking <laughs> god! <laughs> what if a DAO owned your apartment and like and and the governance token holders had to make <laughs> notes about like fixing your your hot water heater? That's, That's exactly demonic. what this is. <laughs> it's deeply demonic. See, there's only one time in my entire life that I ever thought that like throttling a human being to death with my own hands was a viable 
option for something, it was because a landlord. <laughs> Imagine having to do that with like 750 token owners because of something like that. So they are tokenizing. So it's like a real estate investment trust, but on the blockchain with a DAO. Uh, and Why? you were buying 50, you were buying token tokens at $50 a pop um, that then give you rights to uh, like rental payments, like dividends basically from this investment. And also here, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you their rundown. Um, uh, so you get daily rental income. Uh, you get tokens appreciate in value as the property appreciates. If you go to their website, lofty.ai, there looks like, like, uh, like the stock ticker on like the New York Stock Exchange, but it's just addresses and it's like, like, va like values of tokens for shares in certain addresses. And, it, and it's like a, a scrolling ticker with being like, you know, pr like prices are going up. Uh, so, pro so tokens appreciate in the value in value as the property appreciates. Uh, <laughs> one of the big benefits they mention is tax advantages, <laughs> benefits from favorable real estate tax deductions deductions like depreciations uh tokens can be sold anytime no lockup periods decentralized governance token holders vote on all property decisions <laughs> what does that mean and all, that property, mean? all properties are managed by a third-party management company so there's like okay. it's just like your landlord made a dial to manage the uh, the, the land <laughs> To manage the apartment holdings, and now you can buy in on it. Can you imagine yeah, what like, if you are buying? So if I'm if my landlord has a DAO, can I buy into the DAO and get some of my rent back? <laughs> that's that called rent. On? That's called rent to own, Ed. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, man, that's rent a center bullshit. Oh, <laughs> That is actually, we should get into that. That's like a big new thing. And I don't know if it's hit the US, but in Australia, and I've been seeing it, like my girlfriend's been getting these uh, ads on Instagram for rent to buy properties in Melbourne and Sydney. And it's literally mm -hmm. that where it's like, you are renting your home. So it's like the worst of all worlds where they're, they're marketing it as like a, as like a way for people to get into the property market who don't have money for a down payment for, and then, you know, enough credit to get a lease or a mortgage. Um, but instead what it is, is that you just continually rent your home, uh, you know, from a landlord. And then at some point you've Maybe. rented, <laughs> you've, you've put so much money into rent that you then have the option to buy the home. So you have to buy the home for extra money or previous rent isn't, put towards them i think your previous rent is maybe put towards the home but until you actually have enough money to buy the home you don't own the home you're not building equity in it the landlord still owns it and has rights of control over the home it is exploiting all the people who don't have enough money for like a down payment or good enough credit for a mortgage. This is deeply insane. And then like dangling this promise of ownership over them, but you'll never reach that carrot. It's all, you're on a treadmill. It's like dangling in front of you just out of reach. Deeply insane. I'm summoning the fist of Mal right now. 
<laughs> and within my my hand is the throat of every landlord on the face of this planet. I am squeezing as hard as I can. I do wish I could show Mal. I wish I could go back in time and show Mal this uh, tokenized real estate investment platform. <laughs> I think he'd lose his mind. I think he'd lose <laughs> his fucking mind. What the fuck? <laughs> This is the worst shit I've heard today. <laughs> it sucks so bad, dude. It sucks so bad. How'd you find this? How did you stumble upon this? Shout out to uh, to my friend Desiree Fields, who's a, a economic geographer mm-hmm. at UC Berkeley. Who uh, we need to have her on the show, but she stu- like she does all the best work I've ever mm-hmm. seen. On um, she coined the term automated landlord. She's been mm-hmm. working on the like the way that uh, single-family homes have become a new asset class um, Mm -hmm. for private equity. She's been covering, researching that for um, about six or seven, eight years now, way ahead of the curve. Um, But I saw it because Desiree uh, tweeted it out. (laughs) Amazing. We definitely need to have her on the show. I need more of a reason to run off the new friends that I've made by telling them I will never be able to own homes. (laughs) There's another one uh, that somebody, uh, uh, Isabel Simpson, uh, DM'd me after, because I, I tweeted about Lofty AI. Uh, this is how I know you guys don't read my tweets. <laughs> I don't read all of them. I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, But when I tweeted about Lofty AI, uh, somebody DM'd me another one called Slice, the real estate super app. You have more. You have more. (laughs) What's this one? (laughs) Let me guess their URL is something like sli.ce. No, it's not that. It's just getsliceapp.com. They couldn't get get a good URL. (laughs) Which is how you know it's a bullshit company. Um, but they call themselves a real estate super app and they say invest and generate passive income from real estate properties globally with three clicks uh so they say their mission is to democratize real estate investment in a simple transparent and digitally enabled experience uh (laughs) this is this is uh this is uh this is a this is a plot by a federal agent to make us all go mad. I mean, like, I can't think of, I can't think of a worse intersection of the crypto of real estate. Probably God knows what other financial uh, financialized elements there are in there. Whatever weird wonky insurance happens in there. I mean, I feel like this is all a conspiracy to make us as mad as possible. I'm I'm kind of speechless. About it's this. a new way. There was a startup a lot like years ago called Bricks that mm-hmm. their marketing slogan was something like invest in properties brick by brick. And it was also just this like mm-hmm. essentially buy fractional ownership in in a in a property, right? Um, like you would in a company. So, you know, just you're buying <sighs> shares or you're buying stocks or you're buying shards or tokens or whatever the fuck you want to call it, but in a, in a property. Um, and, and this is exactly what slice is, right? It's like, you know, the name is from, you know, get a slice of the real estate market. And so they're saying, you know, invest in the real estate market as low as a thousand dollars. So they're a bit richer for your blood than, uh, than lofty that's only you know fifty dollar tokens but it's all this shit around like you know they say generate passive income of up to 12 percent per year and an additional 10 percent capital appreciation like it's all this shit that um like i don't know if you guys are follow the the like the grind set mindset um you know business gurus and motivational speakers and stuff well like 
then you'll know. I listen to big- them every day. I mean, I have an audio book. It's called <laughs> Grind Harder and How You Can Turn Yourself Into an LLC in 90 Days. <laughs> well, so you'll know then that <laughs> the big trend with these guys is passive income. Yes. They're like, mm-hmm. you only get rich through through passive income, not through active income. And so like it's created this whole new market for these technologies that are like, well, the, the traditional ways of passive income require first having a lot of capital before you can get, you know, it's a real chicken and egg situation where you need a lot of capital before you can get rich through passive income. Uh, and so these companies like Slice and Lofty are, and you know, real estate is like the premier passive income generator. Uh, that's, that's what landlords is. That's what, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's created this whole market for these technology, for these technology companies that are essentially real estate investment trust, uh, but with an app or on the blockchain. Um, and, and being like, you know, everybody can be a landlord. Like, you know, we're democratizing access to uh, being parasites on the the body politic, um, and so you can get the. So they're you know they're they're claiming you know pay a thousand dollars for a slice of real estate you know, to invest in a in real estate, pay fifty dollars for a token in a in real estate, uh, and you get passive income from from this. And then what ends up happening is that you know your home is owned by like uh, your home is either owned by a, uh, a global private equity firm that has a portfolio of like over a thousand homes and doesn't give a fuck about you or your home is owned by um, like uh, like a couple dozen people who have tokens on a on a blockchain on a DAO that owns your home um, and they give way more they give too much of a fuck about you they're like trolling you with their votes you know being like uh we voted that we're not gonna fix your hot water heater because we thought it would be really funny like that's the funniest outcome uh to just to not do that i'm now looking into this there are more DAO landlords than i thought there's a there's a landlord nft project there's a monopoly DAO, a real estate DAO to take back our homes um landlords DAO. let's see let's let's check in on the landlord nft landlord nft is a metaverse real estate investment project living on the ethereum blockchain we they'll be investing 750 ethereum 202.5 million dollars into metaverse land all right this is metaverse bullshit um landlords DAO. this thing's loading a little a little bit for me a little slow while that's loading, that reminds me that uh, the state I live in in Australia, Victoria, like recently, um, uh, like changed it where in official document, in official state documents now, they're no longer called landlords; they're called housing providers. What the fuck? Because the landlords lobbied because they thought landlord made them sound really made them sound bad, and so they it's so they wanted to be called housing providers, and and there was like uh, official policy in the state government now that in all in all documents they are now called housing providers. What the fuck? All right, so there's a there's a DAO called Real Estate DAO in DAO DO. Welcome to the tokenization of leisure real estate. Tokenized vacation properties just became real. Exclusive membership NFT. Only 10,000 available and it costs 0.25 ETH. Includes governance rights. I don't think, has anyone bought a single one? 
<laughs> but that's also just a timeshare. Only eight people have bought them. <laughs> <laughs> this is pathetic. This is pathetic. <laughs> this shit sucks, man. This shit sucks so bad. I'm looking at the FAQs on Lofty, and I could be wrong. I could just be looking at this uh, very briefly, but it seems as if every property uh, that that Lofty owns and is like selling tokens in, every property is itself an LLC. <laughs> so, Jesus what, fucking if, Christ. what if your house was an LLC? What if you were an LLC? What you, everything is an LLC? Or alternatively, hey, do you need to launder money? Well, come on down <laughs> to, <laughs> to Lofty. Well, you can't do that. We're not saying you can do that. We're just saying that if you needed an LLC connected to a property to generate revenue as some part of part of some complicated process to make um, a, a, a you know a legitimate business, you can do that on the blockchain. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, comrades. It's episode 154 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And that, that, that's, to date, that is our longest cold open ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I also see why Trash Future does the startup bit. It's a very fun way to kill 20 minutes of an episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad. I'm real mad at them for coming up with that. Like, I mean, long before TMK existed, but still. <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful innovation. I mean, uh, this is the kind of innovation that we support. All right. Of Absolutely. Uh, my, my thing is, is how we managed to make it last for 20 minutes when there's only three of us. Like, Trash Futures got like 20 motherfuckers on that show. If we had Milo or Alice here, that would have been the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. We just we riffed. We riffed and it was great. And then we learned. And then, and then they talked to us in depth about finance and it was cool. That'll be the premium. Well, so the cold open is not disconnected. That was that is just the setup for for the meat of the episode. Let's get deeper into prop tech, uh, real estate technology sector. It's it's it is boys. It is booming right now. I mean, I've been aware of this for a, for a long time, in large part because of the work by people like Desiree Fields, um, people like. Yeah, you know, friend and, and colleague uh, Dallas Rogers, um, Aaron McElroy. Uh, there's a number of academics who have been researching prop tech, real estate technology sector, uh, largely from an angle of like uh, human geography, urban geography, economic geography for a very long time. Um, but it, suddenly, it is booming. Like there are. A number of there's a lot more attention to this, both in terms of research and reporting. Uh, you know, I've been seeing a number of really good uh, journalistic articles reporting on prop tech. Um, there's an increased attention from academics uh, reporting on this. All evidence that this 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 sector is only getting bigger, 
only growing bigger and only growing in importance for the market, for society, for our lives. Uh, the, recently, MIT Tech Review, I mean, they, they've been really on it lately, um, but they just they published a really long article that we're going to walk through. We might even just do an old classic reading series and just read the article and discuss it as we go. Um, but it's called House Flipping Algorithms Are Coming to Your Neighborhood. Despite millions of dollars in losses, iBuying's failure doesn't signal the end of tech-led disruption, just a fumbled beginning. So as we'll get into... Uh, the kind of shit that we were talking about with like Lofty and Slice, I feel like those are those are the oddities, right? Those are the little sideshow bobs uh, that are fun to laugh at, fun to dunk on. But what we're going to talk about uh, in this article, this is like the main event, right? This is the stuff that is actually going to uh, impact us, like Slice, Lofty. That shit's just funny. It's dumb. It's stupid. I mean, it's going to really suck if your apartment or your house does actually get uh, bought by a DAO um, and tokenized. That's going to fucking suck. But what's more likely to happen um, is that your house gets bought or you get priced out of the market by uh, an algorithm from Zillow or Opendoor or um, by one of these global uh, private equity firms like Blackstone um, or, or Pritium uh, partners. Like that is what's more likely to happen, uh, especially if you're living in the United States, especially if you're trying to live in the Sunbelt region, which is the fastest growing region for single family homes in the US. And that's, you know, that's bringing us from like, like Phoenix down through Texas, you know, Dallas, um, Houston over to like Atlanta up to Charlotte, right? Like uh, that's kind of the Sun Belt region. And it's, it's growing fast, but also there's a lot of these algorithms, home buying and flipping algorithms like iBuying that are just snapping up homes um, at a rapid clip. You know, one thing I'm curious about is, is why or <clears throat> what, what facilitate what facilitated like the 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 shift towards algorithms is it just like okay this is now an asset class we already have high frequency trading algorithms that deal with other sorts of assets and commodities so why not just apply it to homes and the portfolios that have them yeah i mean it's essentially just like trying like from what i understand it's just automating uh house flipping in a, in a way and it's because the the market is so tight right now. The market is so demand heavy right now that if uh, if you can if you can buy a home, and and a lot of these companies like Zillow and Open Door are, are uh, and these private equity firms are making all cash offers uh, on homes, which is really attractive. If you're selling a home, you just you wanna you wanna close that sale, and if you can get all cash. Right up front, hell yeah, you're gonna do that. But there's a line, there's literally a line of people around the block uh, trying to buy homes, looking to get into these auctions. Um, and so, if you can use an algorithm that automatically offers all cash op offers, uh, like like within days of a house going up on uh, on a real estate listing firm, usually it's gonna be a firm, uh, a, a real estate listing like Zillow. 
which it's going to be a real estate listing owned by a company that is also buying these houses, right? So they're going to know immediately, oh, this is this looks like an attractive home. It's within our parameters of like the location we're trying to buy, the type of home, the price, et cetera. Um, so, you know, algorithm just makes an immediate all cash offer and then immediately uh, puts it back on the market but you know, for elevated price, and there's going to be people that are lining up to buy this. And so this is what I think is really ramping this up. It's also like the private equity firms, um, as Desiree Fields has talked about in her work, you know, they're super interested in single uh, family homes as a new asset class. They're really interested. Y'all heard of uh, 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 mortgage-backed securities? What about rent-backed securities? Yes. You know, so the yes. idea here is you securitize rental flows rather than securitizing mortgages. Uh, and, and, you know, somehow that's supposed to be less toxic and, and safer of an asset. Uh, narrator, it is not. <laughs> uh, but, and so we can already see this like start unraveling in really serious ways that if you, if even if you just watch like the big short, it's sudden, it's looking very familiar. I'm just thinking of, you know, when I was reading this, all that was going through my head was the Twin Peaks. It is happening again. It is happening again. <laughs> That's all I was thinking while reading this. Let me just get into the beginning of this article and it'll really lay it out. So this is by Matthew Ponsford uh, in MIT Tech Review. For years, Michael Maxson spent more nights in hotels than, in, than his own bed, working on speaker systems for the titans of heavy rock on global tours. When Maxson decided to settle down with his wife and their two dogs, they chose the city where stadium rock spectacles took him more often than any other, Las Vegas. After renting for several years in 2021, he found a home he wanted to buy in Clark County, a place within easy reach of Vegas's headlined venues, yet also quiet, an airy single-story stucco house on Dancing Avenue, which backs onto a 2,000-acre park. He dreamed of waking up each morning to look out across lakes and parkland. Quote, it was a beautiful home, said Maxson. I mean, the fact you could see the mountains and the sunset and rise, man. But Maxson's whole house hunt was unexpectedly chaotic. House prices in Las Vegas leaped up 25% that year, and the market was awash with cheap mortgages and wolfish investors. His dream home was not owned by a person, but by a tech company. Zillow, the U.S.'s largest real estate listing site, had begun buying up homes in 2018, predicting it could create a, quote, one-click nirvana for purchasing real estate. It estimated returns of $20 billion a year. Zillow offers its instant buying business, followed startups like Open Door and OfferPad, which had pioneered iBuying, the so-called high-tech flipping model, which uses data systems to price houses and investor cash to buy them before fixing them up and selling them. I'll just say real quick as a side note, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Open Door was taken public via a SPAC by Chamath Palihapitiya. Correct. 
So it's all coming full circle. I mean, <laughs> everybody pull out your red string and go, go over to your TMK cork board and make another connection. <laughs> you guys remember when SPACs were a thing? Yeah, they just killed them off. The SEC was like, oh, uh, <laughs> I love how that the SEC waited until um, most of the activity collapsed because almost all SPACs lose money except for for the investors. Um, but I love that they were like, um, "This might be fraud. This might be fraud." But, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna tighten around the rules and the regulations around this because I think y'all are doing some fraud. They already got what was it um, at the at the peak? I think that the SPAC bubble was churning out like close to eighty billion dollars. Um, worth of SPACs. I mean, they all though crashed in, in value, right? They all most most SPACs within a year would were performing well under the the price at which they had their IPO. Nobody gave a fuck uh, because they're all making money out of this, right? I do think it's funny that the SEC took the took the the regulatory approach of. I don't know. Let him touch the stove. He won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I let me. Um, here's a little, little article from an institutional investor. I think also is interesting to think of the numbers with the SPAC bubble. The SPAC bubble burst last year, right? This piece was March was written March 11, uh, 2022. Uh, the SPAC bubble burst last year, resulting in hedge funds holding 170.5 billion dollars worth of special purpose acquisition companies, which was more than double what they owned at the end of 2020. And so at the end of 2020, they only earned 82.4 billion, right? Which is what I thought the fucking peak was. <laughs> and, and about 800 SPACs were filed for IPOs in uh, 2021, and they raised 162.5 billion, which was more than half of the 300 billion raised since the financial crisis of 2008. But only 71 merger deals were actually were announced from that, and then 53 were complete, uh, completed last year, despite the hundreds and hundreds of SPACs being announced previously, right? So it's, yeah, it's dead. It's safely dead. And so that's why, of course, they announced last month, we're looking, we're, we're looking very seriously into SPACs and we're going to figure out what's going on there. <laughs> oh, Johnny come lately at the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, back to the MIT tech review. So yeah, it says SPACs are dead, but, but like zombies, uh, you know, the companies that went public on them are still marching on like open door. Um, so, so back to, to the MIT tech review piece. So in 2021, iBuyers purchases jumped to double pre pandemic levels, accounting for tens of billions of dollars in home sales. All right. Sorry. So if your economic activity and, and your stock price or anything like that jumped a lot during the pandemic, evil company, you're doing yeah. something wrong. <laughs> you're doing something really wrong. <laughs> we, fig- we figured it out. We got the case scoops. Yeah. Rule of thumb there. If you made money, if you started spending a lot more money during yeah. the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you did. you are doing something wrong. So Las Vegas was among the top 10 markets where startups concentrated their investments. In a feverish summer, Maxson had already been outmuscled on two bids by cash offers from Zillow and Opendoor. On Dancing Avenue, Zillow now acted as a seller, having listed the home on June 24th for $470,000, nearly $60,000 more than it had paid less than two weeks before. Hell but yeah, Maxson wanted it and agreed to close at just under the asking price. 
So this gets to what you were talking about. Ed. Why are they doing this? It's because they can buy some. They can buy a home for four hundred dollars or four hundred thousand dollars, all cash. Two weeks later, relist it for four hundred and seventy thousand dollars, and do without doing anything. All it's done is they've just changed owners and they've just upped the price. And people are still the same people bidding on that home for four hundred thousand dollars are still willing to pay that $470,000 markup, not because something in their life changed for two weeks, not because something in the home changed in the last two weeks, but because it is such a supply heavy market or no, a demand heavy market right now um, that people people just want homes uh, and they are literally being forced to pay anything that they can in, in the hopes of getting one. But as we'll, as we'll find out, um, even being willing to pay a $60,000 premium uh, because Zillow bought the home out from under you um, does not mean that you're even going to get that home at, at all. And you might just lose money in the process. So it goes on. When Maxson went to take a look at the property, however, he discovered a 3,700,000 gallon water leak that had eroded garden walls and flooded the neighbor's yard. Seattle-based Zillow, which owned the home, was oblivious, but the city authorities weren't. Maxson found a notice stuck to the garage door, threatening a fine for allowing green water to pool, attracting mosquitoes carrying West Nile virus. This is one downside of having homes owned by faceless corporations, says Maxson. Quote, the owners were disconnected from it because it's just a number on a spreadsheet. End quote. Though he offered to handle the estimated thirty-seven or thirty thousand dollars of repairs himself and take it off Zillow's book for thirty thousand dollars less than the list price, they said no. Maxson discovered soon after that the house had already sold to another family at the same price he had offered. He estimated that he lost about $2,000 on inspections and other costs. The closest he came to securing a home in 22 attempts that summer. That's insane. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. So, yeah, I mean, so this is this is this is where the market's at right now, and this is what these tech companies. If it's if it's not tech companies, it's private equity firms, but they're all doing the same exact kind of shit. And nobody wants to own a house anymore. Everybody wants to rent. That's why we're doing this. Everybody wants to rent. I want to be a renter my entire <laughs> fucking life. That's you what know, they think, keep saying. I think also it's like um, there was that. Do you remember that piece that that uh, Derek Thompson wrote in the Atlantic last year in the summer, where he was, you know, it was in the middle of people being like, okay, BlackRock, Blackstone, these companies own hundreds of thousands of homes, they're ruining the economy. And at the time, he was like, no, because they own only like point one. They only own like 0.5% of all the housing stock. The real problem is that people don't want to build homes in the country. And so this allows home prospective home buyers, investors, small investors um, who are trying to do their own house flipping operation, but also people who are just trying to get single family homes to get fucked um, by uh, competition in the marketplace, by sellers, by realtors, by these algorithms. But I also I I also wonder what you know the effect what effect that having 
these algorithms and these house flipping algorithms has on the general market, even if it's not, even if in the most optimistic scenario, it's half of a percent or one percent of all the housing stock, and it's not necessarily all all the stuff that other people might buy. I mean, I still would presume. Uh, I mean, that's for the that's for the large financial firms. I have no idea what it would be equivalent of for the firms that are playing with. Um, playing with these algorithms but like what is the large i always wonder like what is the larger effect that they're also having on the market like because they're also they're taking advantage of the fact that people will upcharge houses and will also lie to people and will also do all these things individually but they can just do it in mass because it's a faceless corporation like maxon pointed out right like they don't they can lie to him and he'll call them out on it and if it were a person to person then probably have to be some reconciliation on it and like a deal hammered out but they can just lie to someone else who's not going to do the due diligence, who's not going to go to the property, who's not going to check it out and still get their money worth. And so there's really no incentive for them to even like stop. Well, and this is a really good point that you bring up. And it's a, it's one of those things where uh, wonks think they're too smart for their own good, where they're, where they want to be like, well, you know, well, actually this, you know, if you really look at the numbers here, uh, well, you know, uh, you know, I buyer only bought 2% of home or just under 2% of home purchases nationwide, uh, last year. And, and, you know, Blackstone is only buying, you know, 0.5% of, of, of houses. And yeah, but also it, it's, yeah, it, you're exactly right. It's two things going on here is that, you're mistaking absolute numbers for relative power in the market, right? Like, yes, absolutely, 2% or 1% in absolute terms is really low. It's minuscule. It's almost negligible unless it's a market where 2% is a majority, you know? Uh, and, and that is... Uh, the case or or it's a market where uh this this 2% is ha- you know of home purchases is happening in really unpredictable and seemingly chaotic and random automated kinds of ways then that suddenly starts making a bit a big difference you know i hate to be like you ever heard of the butterfly effect but there is a butterfly effect here of a complex system where this kind of movement that from the outside can look really small in absolute terms can actually have really quite systemic ripple effects throughout the whole market and that that is what we're seeing here not to mention the like really serious actual material impacts it's having immediately on people in the market who are trying to buy homes um who are being priced out who are being fucked over right like you know, not to mention those like actual material and impacts that we can't just dismiss as uh, statistically insignificant or as rounding errors in the market, right? That's not the case at all. It's it's I know uh, it, this is a, a, a imperfect analogy, but it is like saying, well, you know, BlackRock only owns five percent. Of a big of of a bit, you know, five percent of shares in a big multinational company, right? Five percent is nothing, right? That's so small. But five percent is a majority because ownership is so distributed, right? And five percent gives you a massive asymmetric power in the market or in the company or in governance. Um, because again, it requires the other 95% of ownership to coordinate amongst lots and lots of people. 
versus one 5% ownership stake that can act as a unilateral uh, voting body. It's, I think it's something very similar in the, in, in the real estate market when you have, you know, iBuyer making 2% of home purchases across the United States. That's a lot. That's a fucking lot. And it's, uh, uh, you know, and it's up against, you know, the, a distributed market where people are not, where you don't have a single actor making anywhere near that mu- that 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 level of purchasing um, decisions or having that level of impact in the market. That's what makes it important here. I think that's what people like that Derek Thompson uh, article that try to be too smart for their own good absolutely miss is that they uh, are not seeing this as a complex system. They're not seeing it as a distributed market that suddenly one actor is throwing a lot of weight around in in a really unpredictable and seemingly chaotic way. All they're doing is is in some ways making the same mistake that Zillow did is they're just seeing it as numbers on a spreadsheet. They're not seeing it as actual commodities and social relationships in a marketplace. I would also say I think another thing that probably was missing that analysis, I mean, because like, you know, the end of the piece, the end of his piece is basically like we need to build more single family rentals to keep rent down. And also, you know, it'll keep uh, housing prices down and, and also and like maybe act as a control on that and also just provide more supply. But also I think of, you know, there's a study in 2020 of, uh, that was on, I think it was by uh, Shu Yi Yu, and it was, uh, it's called like effect of predictive algorithms on home prices and racial biases in the housing market. And it looks specifically at Zillow because, uh, you know, from 2017 to 2019, because Zillow already has had for a while algorithmic pricing, right? This program of doing the house flipping is a relatively recent one that's intensified during the pandemic. But like these sites like Zillow have been using algorithmic pricing for a while and even without the effect of buying homes but instead you know estimating what their value may be they have a sizable impact because so the so the study tries to you know argue that like zillow from 2017 to 2019 was already using algorithmic pricing to try and estimate what the worth of a home was and that this was already having effects on this was already af- uh, affecting how uh housing prices um they t- were trying to ascertain the extent to which it was affecting or the whole uh, the value of a home or mitigating or expanding the gap be- uh, because of how racial biases already come into the picture for how homes are valued right um and they were arguing or they found okay in the preliminary you know, results here, they said that, quote, the algorithmic powered home value estimates can actually mitigate the existing racial biases in the housing market by providing more neutral information and then generalizing that into others. But that also as a, as a, as a, as a consequence or a side effect of that, right? Like they weren't able to fully extend it to think about, okay, who are the, who's using Z estimate, what neighborhoods are being used at for Z estimate, but that the housing algorithm did have an effect in this case it was um it was a downward pressure right and even though it was in a minimal set of neighborhoods and areas that they looked at over two years so i mean i think it's hard to not imagine that okay instead of just having some sort of quote-unquote neutral right um 
algorithm or presentation of information according to this study, but you instead have a, a system that is aggressively buying and selling homes in neighborhoods and trying to prey upon homes that are on sale and then trying to prey on people who are looking for homes that there's going to be a ridiculous amount or there's going to be an uneven distortion on the markets there and what the prices are going to end up looking like. This idea that, well, the solution is just to build more homes. Uh, it, 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 again, it, it's mistaking a um, access to a commodity for the presence of the commodity, right? It's like, well, if there were just more homes in the market, then people would have homes. That That's not necessarily the case at all. If there were more homes in the market, but those homes are owned by uh, a, a, an increasingly smaller number of very large hands, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to have access to those homes. And, you know, it's the same exact thing with food, right? It's like, well, the problem with starvation is to produce more food. It's a distribution problem, not a production problem. But product, but making it into a production problem is just a lot easier than trying to solve a distribution problem, right? Well, we know how to make stuff. We know how to make more stuff. That's what capitalism is really good at. It's in fact, it's so good at it that it overproduces commodities all the time. But what we don't know how to do, or we don't, or rather, at least we don't want to think about and try to do, is is distribution of access to those commodities, food or housing or whatever. That is the problem here. Back to this MIT Tech Review piece, which starts getting into a lot of what you were just talking about as well, Ed. At the, you know, but at the very same time, the startup that had profited from Maxon's dream home was discovering cracks in its own foundation. As it turned out, Zillow offers had lost more than $420 million in three months of erratic house buying and unprofitable sales. As Zillow offers shut down, analysts questioned whether other iBuyers were at risk or whether the entire tech-driven model is even viable. For the rest of us, neighborhoods, renters, or prospective buyers, the bigger question remains, does the arrival of Silicon Valley tech point to a better future for housing or an industry disruption to fear? By summer 2021, the U.S. housing market had almost run out of records to break. The Washington Post reported house prices at an all-time high with a median of $386,000 in June as the number of homes listed hit record lows, 1.38 million nationwide. The average home sold in 15 days that summer, half the time taken a year earlier, as cash-rich investors and second-home buyers bought more than ever before. But, but by November, a New York Times headline asked, will real estate ever be normal again? Despite making just under 2% of home purchases nationwide during this period, iBuyers began to play a larger and more unpredictable role than most, leading the calls from city leaders in Los Angeles to ban the platforms iBuyers grow city by city. Investment is tightly contracted in a handful of locations across the Sun Belt, where the top five, Phoenix, Phoenix, Atlanta, Dallas, Charlotte, and Houston, accounted for more than half the total activity. Through 2021, 
iBuyers bought 70,400 houses nationwide. Nation iBuyers are raising fundraising rounds in the United Kingdom, Europe, and Canada, but all are looking to the successes and failures of the stateside frontrunners. These cities form a neat growth pattern, following a strikingly similar trend to one seen in the trailblazer Phoenix, according to a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper from researchers at Stanford, Columbia, and Kellogg, who analyzed iBuying by Zillow, Opendoor, Knock, Redfin, and Offerpad between 2013 and 2018. iBuyers had roughly 1% market share in Phoenix in 2015, growing to 6% in 2018. In the frantic summer of 2021, iBuyers accounted for 10% of home buys in Phoenix. In certain neighborhoods, 25 to 30% of current listings right now are owned by iBuyers. Today, Opendoor, the market leader, is operating in 44 markets. iBuyers are intervening in super hot housing markets by harnessing big data and artificial intelligence to create a one-sided advantage over regular folks. Where house buying was once a dogfight between individuals, quote, now we're in the age of guided missiles, says Del Preet, a real estate tech strategist, with data-driven buyers claiming a big edge. So there we go right there. That's what we were talking about as well. It's, it's also not the fact that this like 2% of buying is equally distributed across the whole country. It's highly concentrated in only a handful of places. I mean, it's absolutely wild to, to think that over the course of only five years, these iBuyers, these, you know, these uh, companies like Open Door, Knock, Redfin, etc., went from owning... 1% market share in Phoenix uh, to owning 10% over the course of five years with, as they were saying, up to 25 or 30% of current listings in certain neighborhoods, right? So they own, you know, your entire neighborhood could just be owned by uh, one by Zillow or Opendoor, one of these companies, right? Like that's also another thing here is that if we only look at them in terms of absolute numbers and not in terms of the relative power of those numbers and the relative concentration of that ownership, then we miss the bigger picture. And that's really what matters here uh, is, is the way that they are you know, concentrating in a handful of places and at such a rapid pace, an unimaginable pace, just snapping up. Uh, huge double digits of, of market share um, in real estate in some some cities and, and some uh, suburbs. I mean, it's it's kind of baffling to imagine like a, a significant chunk of a neighborhood being owned by one of these algorithms and also that they still shot the bed and lost so much money. You would think there would be some, maybe not some emergent property, but that maybe some uh, someone might say, hey, when we own a significant chunk of a neighborhood, we can fix the prices. Or maybe they don't because that would be explicitly illegal. And you don't want to be explicitly legal. You, sh you know, we can't violate free markets. You want you want everything to work as uh, smoothly as possible, baby. I don't know if I was, if I worked at so. If I, if I were the, if I were a capitalist, I don't think, I, I don't think Zillow offers would have lost uh, four hundred twenty million dollars under me, 
<laughs> but I don't know. Maybe maybe it was inevitable because I also do wonder if at a certain point algorithmic pricing ends up shooting itself in the foot, right? Where even if you control a significant amount of the underlying asset or commodity, um, if you're fucking around or distorting the value of the homes and people are not responding to this or that ridiculous price, then maybe your algorithm will go crazy and try to undercut pricing elsewhere, right? I think there was a there was like a there's a larger investigation into it. I think we you know we did one we we did one that looked at um, why it was when it, around the time it was closing up. Wired also did one, and I think they were talking about how. And I mean, your your work also talks about this at length. Everyone's. We, you know, this has been a thing that has been hammered home where it's like if just sucking up data does not actually give you something that works, right? And a lot of people insist and believe that the more data you suck up, the more trends and things and you can analyze and intuit and the, and the better that your, your, your working model of the world will work and that it seems like the pandemic fucked up a lot of the models um, for pricing and then they said okay let's just buy more anyway <laughs> all right let's just let's just let's just keep buying um, and buying thousands and thousands and thousands and maybe it turns out that maybe the algorithmic house pricing fails at scale and it's fine if it's one percent and it's five percent I mean not fine morally right it's still abhorrent but that but maybe it earned the money on one to five percent and then once it gets at scale it's like oh fuck what the fuck are we doing here? Why do I have 20,000 homes in Seattle or in Phoenix? Yeah, exactly. And you know, what you're talking about here is what's called automated valuation models. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's what these companies, you know, say is their bread and butter, right? Like these proprietary data systems that, uh, you know, uh, combine and analyze, you know, sales prices from, you know, uh, hundreds of 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 list of real estate lists listing services, combining that with information from mortgage lenders, um, public data sets, uh, map data. Like they, you know, they look at like Yelp reviews of local bars in the neighborhood, um, plus all kinds of other, you know, private and proprietary data sold by real estate analysts. Um, and this is what they use you know, with their with their secret algorithmic sauces to supposedly come up with, you know, these automated, uh, you know, valuation models of real estate. And that's what allows them to then, you know, uh, make, make these snap decisions about like automated buying of properties. Um, but, but as you've said, I mean, it's all, there's so much that's obviously wrong baked into that but also there's so much that is just it's mysticism right it's just and it, and it and it bear, it bears out in the outcomes that it's it's uh it doesn't work i mean folks zillow wishes zillow wishes they only lost 420 million dollars yeah 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 <laughs> right yeah that was what was that that was open doors recently zillow revealed that it had lost 881 million dollars on zillow offers <laughs> Uh, in, a, in a letter to shareholders, the CEO, Rich Barton, uh, blamed it on, um, you know, saying it was too risky, too volatile to our earnings and operations. Um, you know, in other words, from what I've read as well, is the algorithm became something of a Frankenstein's monster that it just started acting on its own and started just buying and, and you know, 
clearly had like faulty valuation models built into it and was also clearly given way too much power without having humans review every purchase decision. And it just started snapping up, uh, uh, how like real, like houses automatically leaving with Zillow with a lot of fucking liabilities on their, on their balance sheet that they couldn't do anything with. Uh, and so they, they really see it from what I've seen. It sounds like Zillow was something of a, of a, a, a victim of its own technology, which I mean, is some poetic justice, if not for the fact that it also fucked over a lot of people, uh, in the country who wanted to buy houses and couldn't or, or ended up paying way over market price. One of these things that, as this MIT Tech Review piece uh, explains, is that these uh, these automated valuation models can lead these eye buyers to uh, to disaster when some sellers quote offer up lemons or dud homes, you know, say with stinking carpets or standing water, and others offer up peaches or charming homes in a neighborhood full of amenities. By bidding an average price for both homes, the iBuyer ends up paying too much for lemons while families with peaches who feel harshly undervalued refuse to sell. So what you end up seeing is that these automated valuation models, these automated iBuyer algorithms, they end up buying up all the lemons at over market value, but never getting any peaches, which leaves them with what? A lot of toxic toxic assets and liabilities on their balance sheet that they can't get off. And it's why, yeah, Zillow lost almost $900 million on Zillow offers. Opendoor, which is the current market leader, uh, reported in 2021 a net loss of $662 million. I love that quote. It's like, we just lost well over half a billion dollars. Um, open doors getting bigger and stronger. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I love, I love the fake economy. I love it. It's great. This is, I mean, this is, this is the Tinkerbell technology right here, right? You have to believe hard and clap loud uh, for this shit to, you know, to exist. I was reading the, uh, uh, that Chris Dixon interview in the verge uh, recently. Oh yeah. Classic. Really amazed at the uh, like the level of uh, amazed at one person's ability to be so indignantly adamant that something mm-hmm. is not bullshit when it's obviously bullshit. He's being told it's bullshit. He's being shown it's bullshit, but he is so indignant and adamant that it is not bullshit. And that's what you. That's that's like the staff stance. That's the position. Uh, you have to have uh, in order to to exist in this marketplace. Um, it's it's absolutely wild. So I mean, Zillow's pricing failures wiped out more than thirty five billion dollars in market value by February twenty twenty two, um, leaving Zillow with. Uh, uh, having to lay off 25% of its staff and, and is facing two class action lawsuits from shareholders, probably claiming something like securities fraud. Uh, if I, if I would guess. Oh, yeah, baby. You got to work with Masayoshi son to get those numbers and they did that all on their own. That's crazy, man. Let's get a, a round of applause going for, uh, uh, for Zillow for destroying capital and setting it on fire better than anybody else. I'm raising Zillow's jersey to the rafters. (laughs) (laughs) Top capital 
destructors. I know VCs love to talk about capital allocators. We need to start celebrating capital destroyers, right? People who <laughs> do what needs to be done and just piss away more money than God. <laughs> My grind core band name is going to be Capital Annihilators. Hell yeah. That's their name. It. Not destroyers, Capital Annihilators. Capital Annihilators. That's, um, that's so good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's also really fascinating thinking about how they didn't anticipate COVID. They started to not understand their algorithms buying um, erratic buying behavior. They didn't understand the underlying conditions that it was going into. It was doing these average prices and buying too many lemons and not enough peaches, right? And yet, and yet, I want I want you guys, I want the listener. I hope you're not reading along because if you're not, it's going to, the next paragraph will, will be a beautiful one for you, given what we just said about how you got to work with uh, uh, Masayoshi san. You want to, you want to do it, Jason? No, you hit it, hit it, Ed. Making sense of iBuyer's erratic transactions means understanding not just how their technology works, but where they come from, explains Del Prede. Tech led disruption of real estate is not the result of a couple of buddies in a garage, he explains. Quote, there are no pure tech plays that are revolutionizing real estate, end quote. The fuel is billions of dollars that investment firms are pouring into housing with open door backed by, drumroll please, $400 million from SoftBank, among other giants. The upheaval Maxon witnessed is one, quote, downside of having a for profit Wall Street. Funded corporate middlemen involved in the real estate transaction, says Del Prete. The company's winning. Somebody has to lose. But the impact is also felt by consumers, neighborhoods, and cities. So, you know, you, you know, if you say his name twice, if you say his name once, he'll appear, I think. I don't, you don't <laughs> even need to say it three times, right? Masayoshi-san is connected to everything. If you see a company losing money, you need to figure out when SoftBank invested in them. It's the poison pill. It's the <laughs> ultimate poison pill. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it's again, ridiculous. This goes back to what we were talking about uh, with WorldCoin and all these other companies too, is that they refuse to fail quietly though. They have to do it in a way that maximizes collateral damage and long lasting harm. It's, it's wild. It is wild that it is like such an MO for SoftBank and all these companies that take soft make money that they all operate in the same way of being like, Let's go in, let's throw a lot of weight around, let's be big wells, and let's do it in a way that dis- that uh, annihilates capital, uh, causes maximum collateral damage, takes down as many people with us as we can, uh, and also salts the earth so nothing can grow in its, in, in its place for 100 years. Like, that's the SoftBank strategy, baby. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's, the, it's the failure that keeps on winning. I'm going to quote a movie here. I don't know if Jason's going to get this because I think you previously mentioned that you don't, you haven't watched it, but Ed might. We are nihilists. We've cared about nothing. That's the total vibe I get. Okay. That is the total vibe I get from SoftBank. Don't insult me by saying I've, I don't know the Big Lebowski. Don't insult oh, so, me like so, that. So you've, you've, you've watched the Big Lebowski uh, since episode 47? Last time I referenced Big Lebowski on the show? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I've seen it before that, but just because I saw a movie, don't mean I'm gonna catch every. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a big Lebowski head like you. I've seen the movie though, <laughs> insulting me like that. <laughs> Jeremy showing us his big Lebowski <laughs> poster uh, in his in his house. Jeremy's wedding invitations uh, were also big Lebowski themed. Uh, my man, my man's a Lebowski head. Look, just because I got the last name. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's really what it feels like with SoftBank. It's just like they're coming in. It's like the exact opposite of uh, Dr. Killinger from Venture Brothers where he comes in and turns everything like tip top. They come in and they're just like, well, it's time to fuck shit up. It is time to fuck shit up. Yeah. You know. Money, money corrupts, and absolute money corrupts absolutely. You know that's that's what's happening here. There's no other. There's no other outcome possible when you're talking about uh, so, so much money. I mean, when when you, you know when SoftBank is funneling four hundred million dollars into into Open Door, what the fuck you think is gonna happen? <laughs> you know, that means they're gonna lose twice that amount. That's that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to lose twice that amount, and they're going to cause ten times more of that amount of damage to the market. And that's 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 called multiplier effects. All right, yeah. that's, that's growth. <laughs> right, that's econ one hundred and two. Right, that's business school econ. You don't learn about that in the in, in the regular classes. Right? <laughs> it should be a message to anybody working at a company right now. If you find out that SoftBank is invested in your company, get out. Just like jump off the fucking ship. Just leave. I think I, we should all. I think you know. Just every time it's just every time there's an investment or a funding round led by them, you just have to install a plank in your building. You, you know, just like a really quick exit plan. I'll jump down a little bit to, to near the end of the episode uh, episode. Well, we're getting near the end of the episode too, but near the end of the article. Um, I mean, the article just really lays out in clear detail. I mean, they also talk about how we we've meant, I've mentioned Blackstone, uh, you know, private equity, you know, talking about how they're getting in on it too. Right. Yeah, as, as they write, you know, yeah, coming into the pandemic, Wall Street had again assembled an unimaginable arsenal with which to strike deals around $2.3 trillion. It was preparing, suggested the Wall Street Journal, quote, for what could be a once in a generation opportunity to buy distressed real estate assets at bargain prices. Once again, it is happening again. It is happening again. Like, Reading, reporting, and research on real estate technology, uh, and and it, it just feels like being strapped in a car that is accelerating at an uncontrollable rate. But there's no steering wheel. There's no way out. Uh, you know, another crash, a, a big crash, feels imminent uh, and immediate. But at the same time also unpredictable and uncontrollable, right? Like you don't know when it's going to happen. You just know it's going to happen. And then you also feel like there's nothing you can do about it, right? That's, that's, the, that's the only feeling I get 
every time I'm reading about the, the real estate tech sector, the prop tech market, um, it's just that sense of this is accelerating at an uncontrollable rate. It is happening again. Like, you know, the writing is on the wall. Um, like these motherfuckers just refuse to learn. They refuse to learn. Uh, and, and so what we see, you know, they've got, they're buying, you know, uh, the, these companies are, are these, you know, these Wall Street financiers are like, this is a once in a generation opportunity to buy distressed real estate assets at a bargain price. These firms are reinvesting in a big way. Blackstone bought Home Partners of America with 17,000 homes for $6 billion in June of 2021. Toronto-based Tricon launched a $5 billion joint venture in July to buy up 18,000 homes across the Sun Belt. Indeed, many prop tech innovations were developed by these Wall Street giants, with Blackstone alumni leading disruption from VC firm Fifth Wall and European pioneer um, IMMO. Rooftop founder uh, Beasley was co-CEO of Starwood Waypoint Residential Trust, one of the U.S.'s largest single-family rental companies, and sees his startup as disseminating the same tech tools. Quote, the idea with Roofstock really was to take a lot of that knowledge of how we could package up and sell and manage single-family rentals and offer that as a service both to institutional investors as well as individual investors, um, end quote. So what we see here is this is not disruption in a normal sense that we think of, of like, you know, startups coming in and disrupting traditional financiers or legacy incumbents. This is about partnerships and it's about revolving doors. Um, as Desiree Fields, uh, you know, her, her research has also talked extensively about how a lot of these, uh, what she calls automated landlord technologies, these kind of like, you know, prop, you know, once companies buy homes, they then need to manage these vast portfolios of rental properties. So that's where there's a lot of these new like apps and technology companies that are coming in to provide kind of automated property management, automated landlord activities, you know, everything from automating uh, uh, submission of repair request to automating uh, rent uh, payments uh, and, 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 and collection of rent, right? So just managing and automating all of this for, you know, companies that have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of properties on their portfolios. This is about making that, uh, the management of those assets more efficient, more automated, more certain. And so what we see as Desiree Fields has, has laid out is that, uh, this created a huge market opportunity for these technology companies, right? So these big private equity firms are, these are the first and foremost, the, the customers of a lot of these technologies. They are the ones that, uh, so it's not, they're not being disrupted by these technologies. They're being serviced by these technologies, you know, that's what's really happening here. And, and so it's all about partnerships. It's all about revolving doors. It's not about replacement or disruption of market actors. Um, it's, it's disruption of the market in the sense of consumers in the market, but not of merchants and owners in the market. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's significantly different from the rhetoric we see around what disruption usually means. I will also say as well, um, and this is, you know, for another, another episode, but 
it's very similar. It's the exact kind of thing that we see in InsureTech as well, where it's all about partnerships. It's all about uh, tech companies in the InsureTech sector um, partnering with and creating services and technologies for uh, big uh, insurance, big legacy insurers, um, with the hope of, uh, uh, of oftentimes with the hope of a, a merger or an acquisition um, being the end goal, um, not disruption, as we see with the rhetoric around like DeFi versus TradFi, for example. Um, and so that you know that's really significant because it also means that these technologies are about uh, con- uh, increasing and consolidating the power of these big private equity firms. I mean, it's, and it's beautiful. That's, this is why the market works. If you hustle, you win. And look, for these firms, they're hustling. They're buying up homes. They're flipping them. They're making algorithms. They're putting capital where it needs to be. They're making backroom deals with their friends on Wall Streets to drive most of the sales to them. Hustle it. Hustling. Personally, I don't see anything wrong with this. This seems fine. I don't, you know, it's not like this ever happened before. <laughs> it's not like it's not like financializing homes into a disc- into a discrete set, multiple types of asset classes has ever backfired before. I don't, I'm I'm fine. I think this is okay. I think this is overblown uh, report from uh, MIT Tech Review. <laughs> Ed, I, I think I think you're uh, you're drug lord chair that you're sitting in is is corrupting your brain (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i am i am this is the sort of chair i'd sit on when i'm holding court if i'm holding court in my little in uh, my little uh drug trafficking operation which i do not have (laughs) but if i did have one for listeners at home ed is camped out in a a real magisterial uh, looks like a like a, a, a wicker chair or something like that. Imagine it kind of looks like the chair in that photo sh- in that photo of uh, Huey Newton um, with uh, where he's sitting up there with um, with two spears and the wicker chair behind him. Kind of looks like that. I think. All right. Well, well, let's go with that one then. My my analogy was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's not go. Let's go with that analogy. <laughs> That pretty much brings us to the end of this MIT Tech Review piece. There's a little bit more in there um, that we didn't get to, but we covered most of it. And I mean, this is really, again, this is just the beginning. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think this this shit is is clearly getting out of control. It's clearly accelerating, um, and the writing is on the wall. I mean, the outcome is in you know is inevitable. Uh, at least it feels that way. Um, it's more a matter of not. If but when? When is it going to happen? When when is the bottom going to fall out? When's the crash? When's another crash? And and what you know? What kind of uh, ripple effects are we going to have? What kind of collateral damage from it? You know, I think the um, <clears throat> this article really lays out the relationships in a in a beautifully succinct way at the bottom. So you know, here we see 
Uh, each company is now trying to capture and automate more of the value of the transaction chain that has traditionally been split between mortgage brokers, flippers, title agents, real estate agents, and more. The core mechanics are tech, tech companies value homes and manage deals married with free-flowing finance from Wall Street. That, that's the beautiful marriage that we're seeing here. Tech companies providing the services to reduce transaction costs and automate management while Wall Street sits back and just provides that free-flowing capital. A recipe for disaster um, for, for us uh, and, you know, they, they hope success for them, but we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see either way. Time. Not good, folks. Um, also, uh, just the beginning. I think we, there's a lot more for us to talk about in terms of the, uh, the prop tech, uh, real estate tech uh, sector market, kind of dynamics, movements happening here. Um, a lot more to talk about. And I already got a number of people on my mind uh, for us to talk to about this as well. So, so um, I, I foresee a, a little series of interviews and, and episodes in the near future focusing on real estate tech, prop tech. Until then, we, we keep covering that fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate. Everyone pays it. Everyone, everyone wants to pay attention to finance. No, no one wants to talk about insurance and real estate, but TMK does. We do it over here. Yeah, we've, we're always going to do it. Uh, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you for subscribing as always. Uh, and we will catch y'all next week with more to come. Until then, see ya. Adios.